Have you heard about the mass shooting in Buffalo? I did. What was your immediate reaction to that news? My immediate reaction was just um, very distraught, feeling of like hopeless. I guess like the thought was like, oh, again, this is just so upsetting. And then just getting like scared and thinking about the loved ones in my life and just being reminded that like anything can happen anywhere. I wonder, has this event made you by chance think differently about, you know, the people you may be friends with on Facebook or people who might be in your own personal life who may be saying some offhanded things that, you know, you may be looking at a different light? Yes, to a certain extent. I guess I didn't think of that directly in this moment, but I guess the thought does cross your mind. You just don't ever know what anyone's capable of and it's really scary. Welcome to the show. I'm Kai Wright. And you know what? This is a really scary moment. With the grind of awful news stories and the onslaught of norm-shattering events over the past several years, it's a lot. And amid all that, the extreme ideologies that motivate a segment of white America can become abstractions. But we have, again, been reminded over the past week that they are a very real and present danger from the great replacement theory to insurrectionists winning primary elections to Republican leaders hanging out in Hungary with proud racists and dictators. As overwhelming as all of this can feel, we do have ways to understand it and we do have ways to confront it. So tonight, let's try to get our minds around it together. The white terror attack in Buffalo is, of course, still top of mind. So we'll start there. Juliet Kayyem leads the Homeland Security Project at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. She's a former assistant secretary in the Homeland Security Department of the Obama administration and now the author of a new book called The Devil Never Sleeps, Learning to Live in an Age of Disasters. And Juliet, thank you for making time tonight. Thank you for having me. So we'll get to the broader questions your book raises, but let's first focus on what happened in Buffalo. After these attacks, the killer is often described as this sort of extreme outsider, and we use this word lone wolf. Yeah. And you wrote an essay in The Atlantic in which you dissected that trope, the lone wolf trope, and you actually started by breaking down the metaphor itself. So maybe yeah. can we start there yeah. too? Like, Explain the place of the so-called lone wolf in the actual animal kingdom. Exactly. So, right. So lone wolf, we generally think of as, you know, the guy generally the guy who acts solo. And that's to compare it to sort of the ISIS or Al-Qaeda type terror attacks that were highly, uh, you know, lots of people, highly structured, highly organized. Uh, so, so wolves are not a particularly spectacular species. They're not strong. They're not fast. Uh, their, um, their power comes in the pack, uh, comes from the fact that they are a group. Uh, when they find their prey, and I'm using purposeful language here, when they go for the hunt, uh, they uh, they surround their prey and uh, one attacks strong uh, and goes after various uh, parts of the prey. And, um, and that means that the lone wolf, literally in the animal kingdom, is not a threat. He cannot, mm. he cannot massacre. And I thought, was thinking about that. I was thinking like, well, why, like the lone wolf is actually not scary. I'm seeing all these explanations for all these guys, you know, time after time saying lone wolf. And the truth is, is just given the law online environment, given the 
uh, radicalization in our political space, as you noted, which I don't think we should be shy about what's going on, about the incitement for violence that is, permeates a, the, the language of, of, um, of, of many members of the, of the GOP. And, I, and, I, uh, and the former president, Donald Trump, when he uses words like fight and mm -hmm. liberate, and you know, he, his people know what he's saying. And um, uh, means that there are, these are not lone wolf incidents. And, and they are, structured and organized online for performative purposes. I mean, these, as, as we've learned about the, the killer in Buffalo, he was performing, he was stalking for months with an it's audience so watching. It's, it's so chilling. This part is really Yeah, chilling. yeah, so it's a, there's an online, I don't use it, but there's a, you know, many online chat rooms. This one is called Discord. He had, we don't, Discord has not disclosed to my knowledge how many people were part of his sort of online chat room. There are some news reports suggesting that um, a number of people started following the video of the killing because he did video as part of his performance uh, uh, right before. But he's for months before, um, he is, is not only uh, sort of documenting or messaging about the most random of things, a parking ticket or whatever else, but also, uh, 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 this kill. I mean, I'm just being honest with you. This yeah. was a hunt. He goes to the supermarket beforehand. He's, he's entering it weeks before he's entering it. He's, he's, he's determining that it is sufficiently, uh, filled with black shoppers. That's what he wanted. Um, and then in the days before, just talk about the number of people knew he actually uploads this, this manuscript people. Some people call it manifesto. I think that gives it too much credit. This manuscript onto another um, platform called Mediafire. So if you're just looking at his network, it's not one. I mean, let's just be clear. It is not one. It is a group of, of mm -hmm. radicalized individuals who are engaging, supporting, giving comfort. He's, as I wrote in the piece, he found his people. Yeah. You know. Why does the language matter? Well, I mean, yeah. who cares whether we call him a lone wolf? Or yeah, not? Why, why I mean, part matter? of well, part of it was I wanted people to 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 sort of visual, like to sort of say, okay, wait, now I get it. Like a lone wolf is not scary. These guys are scary. The other is it is important that we see the network uh, as as maybe not criminally liable, but mm -hmm. as 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 culpable bystanders. And until we start to do that, we're gonna we're gonna have all sorts of excuses that is, you know, is mental health or or access to guns. And I, trust me, I am a strong advocate of of, of stronger gun gun legislation, but but at some stage, uh, it is also the the network that is supporting it um, uh, mm -hmm. in terms of this, you know, what we're calling domestic violent extremism. And it means that the answer is not just law enforcement, although that's clearly going to be an answer. Uh, for people who see this happening, you are, you're not just a bystander. I mean, you are the audience. You're, he's doing it for you. So, you know, people say, well, I was watching him or, you know, oh, he was saying things online. Like he's saying them because he wants whoever the him is, he wants the, the audience. And so I think it's going to take a lot of engagement as well, having people come forward. Um, in the Buffalo case, let's be honest. I mean, that was months. Some and no one said anything. No one. I mean, I have to say, and I, 
you know, I weighed carefully into this because I don't know people's lives and I don't, you know, yeah. I certainly don't know the facts. But I, one of the details that stood out to me was like the day after this shooting and they went to the neighborhood, to his neighborhood. And the neighbors were like, oh, yeah, we were just at his graduation party recently. And I thought. No one this he this wasn't. I just wonder yeah. what's what's being said at that party. And I really do wade into this carefully, but I think about the performance element of it. And we and we go to the, you know, the big, you know, the the performing on Discord for other avowed white supremacists. Right. But what about the performance in less spe- particular yeah. spaces? How much is that? How much do we see that in these cases? A, a lot. I mean, so so I mean so each of them is is different in terms of this this. You know, how, why that guy, right? There's lots of people who are absorbing radicalization, but why this particular person? And that might be a combination of, uh, you know, background, mental issues, desire, whatever whatever it is. But you, you do see in a lot of these cases, this performative nature as well in terms of how they're relating to the outside world that's not online. Now, I actually particularly, I think actually the parents in this case, it seems to me probably did know something was was going on, but we don't know yet. So each case is, 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 is different, but what's not unique in each of these cases, and this is what's important for people to, to realize is that they are finding their people through a you know a radicalization process that is being comforted in our political space. So I don't want to dismiss the politics of our time either. And I'm pretty clear about that. There's wonky terms like stochastic terrorism that I use, which is just a way of saying like we have political leaders who who are speak and media leaders who are speaking in a way that um, that radicalizes. There's just no question about it. They may not be specific as to what form of violence the, the violent radicalization takes. That's the random nature of it. But one can hardly be surprised that some of their listeners will be m- motivated. And that's the that's the scary thing about the replacement theory. It 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 is it is not about demographics and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm you know, I've been in counterterrorism and Homeland Security a long time. Replacement theory came out of France as a, as a reflection or a, a condemnation of, of uh, ending immigration for Muslims that were, you know, destroying French culture. Uh, it, it is clear. It is not about, it is not about, Oh, our country's changing because our country is changing. We will be a majority non-white, country within the de- uh, a couple decades that's most people view that as mm-hmm. yeah but many don't uh replacement theory that you hear from fox media and, and and now the republican party which has not disavowed it is essentially a theory that the pie is limited and the presence in this case of the bl- of blacks right the he he chose black yeah. he said he chose black it means that my i cannot have a piece uh, any part of the pie either so the so it justifies violence because you know it's essentially you know it's either me or you us or them and uh and that's and so i am you know the 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 yeah, the, the the fact that we're even talking about replacement theory, I thought it was the third rail and nothing in this country surprises me anymore but it's Mm -hmm. it's it, it should be a third rail juliet you appear in the buffalo shooters 
manuscript manifesto, however we'll call it. How so? And, and how did you? Yeah, I should say that? so. I, well, I'm I'm an on-air analyst for CNN. Whenever anything goes bad, so that's sort of my little niche. Uh, and I'll, I'll be on for like 48 hours and then never again. But um, and so there's a meme that describes uh, a lot of the CNN. Uh, it's a, the Jews of CNN. And it's a, a meme that is sort of someone put together and has shown up a number of these white supremacy documents. So I had seen myself in in that as well. The irony is, you know, I'm a mayor of America, which probably doesn't make him feel better, but it was just a, you know, it's just a, like a list of, of, of people and, and of media, of, of media folks. Um, I did not any, any more than I get nasty tweets or whatever. I don't, I, I'm not going to, I don't really jump every single time mm. anymore. It's, it's, it, I, if you're in this space, you sort of get used to it, but I, but I didn't make me think that in the same way, I wasn't that special. The, the, really the killer in Buffalo isn't that special either. I mean, his specialness came from the pack, right? I mean, he's, yeah. he's not an exceptionally, I mean, honestly, like, I don't think we're going to find anything sort of exceptionally interesting about him. I mean, he probably had mental illness or some, or some, but lots of people have mental illness and don't do this. Like there's, I, there's, unless we look at the pack and the network that's supporting it and watching for months, months, like I, I don't, I, you know, this is the scary part of this story. Yeah. Your expertise is really in responding to social threats of all sorts. Yeah. Um, and your new book, as I mentioned, came out at the end of March. It's called The Dev Devil Never Sleeps, The Learning to Live in an Age of Disasters, <laughs> uh, which is great, great title. Um, yes, and the premise, <laughs> the premise seems to be that disasters are, are a constant part yeah. of our society. So just quickly say more about that and oh, why that is you. an important point to make right now. Yeah, so I've been in this field a long time, and it's and it's also important because you know it's not just about terrorism, but obviously we came out of a pandemic, and and I think a lot about climate change and natural disasters. And so, uh, having been in this field a long time, I realized we had this weird notion of success and failure, right? If we can stop yeah. the bad thing from happening, that's success, and if we don't stop it, that's failure. But the truth is, is you know the the devil. Like there's not a time, like if, we, if we're building for a time of rainbows and unicorns, I, I hate, you know, I hate to, I shouldn't be the first to break it to you, but that's not what our goal is. And <laughs> our goal should be to, as I say in the book, learn to fail safer. I mean, in other words, when we're, when we're on the other side of what we prefer in disaster management proverbial called the boom, when you're on the other side of the boom, what can you do uh, to uh, prepare ourselves to fail safer so that the measure of success is really, you know, were things less bad, right? I mean, other, mm. so I think about this about, you know, obviously the, the network of radicalization is absolutely terrifying and we need to uh, address that. But one of the things where I would hope we could get some common ground, and we certainly have it in the polling, but in, if you're in law enforcement or homeland security, one of the things that you focus on in terms of gun control is, or gun control measures, is not so much handguns or other things that, you know, suicides or, or, um, or uh, you, you want to focus on, on the weapons that kill so fast that no public safety apparatus can save you in time. And that's that's what happened in Buffalo. I think the first phone call was a minute and a half. Some of the school shootings, they, they have people 
who are armed on campus. Oh, I guess I had one in Buffalo as well. And so, you know, one of the things I think about is just, well, can we at least maybe get some, you know, it, it's not good if someone comes in with a handgun, but it's certainly better than if, than the kind of weaponry we're seeing out there. So it's a way of thinking about how we can invest in, um, in, 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 metrics and in investments that help us fail safer, mm -hmm. uh, make things less bad. And I sort of cut across uh, every disaster uh, and go back to disasters that people think they know and say, okay, well, let's look at this a little bit differently because here's here's the alternative, you know, that would have been worse. And so what can we learn from that? Yeah. Uh, and um, yeah, so hopefully it's, I mean, it's actually optimistic because it's like I, we no, have agency. Yeah, we have agency. I think that's one of the things that like, you know, I mean, I do breaking news, like breaking disaster news for CNN. And I have been doing it for a while. And, you know, it's like this thing and that thing and this thing. And you just and and you can start to feel sort of overwhelmed by it. But I think one of the reasons why I can feel optimistic is that you actually see how people can assert agency. I mm -hmm. think if I think if you watch too much bad news, you'll start to, you know, freak out as we say your only options are to freak out or tune out um and uh and hopefully this provides some agency juliette kayyem is director of the homeland security project at harvard's kennedy school of government she's a former assistant secretary in the homeland security department of the obama administration and now author of that wonderful new book the devil never sleeps learning to live in an age of disasters juliette thanks for this thank you so much We'll turn next to a particular brand of extremist ideology that is showing up in those primary campaigns that we talked about. What is Christian nationalism and how did it become such a powerful part of Republican politics? And we'll take your calls. Have you thought about what you can do to confront the growth of extremist ideologies among white Americans? I'm thinking in particular about white people specifically here. So do you have anyone in your life who believes things like the Great Replacement Theory? Tell us what you've learned about confronting it. 212-433-WNYC. We'll be back after break. Hi, it's Rahima. I help produce the show. If this episode resonated with you in some way, we want to hear from you. Here are some questions to think about. Do you have anyone in your life who believes in things like the Great Replacement Theory? Are you engaging with them? How have those conversations gone? We'd love to hear more about your experiences. Here's how you can share them with us. Record yourself on your phone, then email us the recording, or you can just write us a regular email. Our address is anxiety at wnyc.org. That's anxiety at wnyc.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome back. I'm Kai Wright, and I'm joined next by someone who has spent many years reporting on the intersection of white identity politics, the Republican Party, and religious extremism. 
Sarah Posner is the author of Unholy, Why White Evangelicals Worship at the Altar of Donald Trump. She's an investigative reporting fellow at Type Media Center, and she has been watching the Republican primaries play out with some concern. Sarah, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Kai. Okay, so the Pennsylvania Republican primary, this has been the big story of this year's election so far. And we all remember the state's role in the 2020 election, of course. We can imagine it playing a similar role in the 2024 presidential election. But in any case, you wrote in advance of that Pennsylvania primary about Doug Mastriano, who has now won the GOP nomination for governor. And your article in TPM was called How Christian Nationalism and the Big Lie Fused to Fuel Doug Mastriano's Candidacy. So we are going to start there. And Sarah, for those who aren't yet tuned into the midterms, who is Doug Mastriano? Before we get to your reporting on the Christian nationalism in his campaign, particularly, just introduce him to listeners. So Doug Mastriano is a pro-Trump state senator in Pennsylvania who uh, has spent a lot of time advancing Trump's stolen election lie, trying to get uh, uh, illegal uh, substitute slate electors uh, injected into the uh, electoral process in Pennsylvania back in 2020, um, and attended the insurrection. Uh, So Mastriano has uh, his gubernatorial campaign centered on uh, not only his belief in uh, Trump's stolen election lie, but also in the idea that um, he has, you know, he's carrying out God's will in his campaign and would be carrying out God's will as governor. And so that's that gets us into the Christian nationalism piece. And so, again, overall, what what is Christian nationalism like as a movement and a belief system for people who have never heard of this? Introduce people to that set of ideas. So Christian nationalism is a political ideology that holds that America was divinely founded as a Christian nation and that uh, social and political and legal changes that happened over the course, say, of the second half of the 20th century until now, um, including, uh, importantly, secularism, uh, have subverted the Christian nation. And it is the duty of patriotic Christians to restore the Christian nation. So Sarah, we were talking with Juliet about the great replacement theory and this idea that like we, when, when something happens like the, the, the shooter in Buffalo, that we immediately think of him as exceptional as this lone wolf off on off in the corner. And just as you're helping us understand what Christian nationalism is, Put it in context similarly about, you know, beyond electoral politics, just like how widespread is this in the culture right now? How widespread is Christian nationalism in the culture? Yeah. So I would say, you know, it's hard to divorce it from politics because it is the core of the Republican Party. So it is the driving ideology of the Republican Party base currently. And has been for a while, but I think Trump really energized it and accelerated it. So it is not only extremely widespread within white evangelicalism, which it is, but the ideology of of, of white Christian nationalism has also permeated uh, people who might not necessarily identify as evangelicals, including conservative Catholics and uh, mainline Protestants. 
And as we saw in the insurrection, the, the ideology and iconography of Christian nationalism is so widespread that even someone like the QAnon shaman was seen in that uh, famous Luke Mogelson video inside the Senate chamber praying in Jesus's name. So Christian nationalism, in a way, is an ideology that transcends you know, Christianity. Um, and that's why I called it a political ideology. Right. So how has this shown up in Doug Mastriano's campaigning? He's now the Republican nominee for governor of one of the most important states in our political system. And he's been credited with running a smart campaign, actually, is what analysts say. So so how did Christian, Christian nationalism show up in that campaign? Well, he campaigned at a lot of events, uh, like uh, one was called Pennsylvanians for Christ, um, which was uh, their stated goal was uh, you know, restoring the kingdom of God in Pennsylvania. Um, and he was not shy about campaigning at these very explicitly Christian nationalist events where they basically talked about how it was necessary for patriots to carry out God's will and change the, change the politics of Pennsylvania and change the politics of the country. And uh, Mastriano talks about this a lot, um, his acceptance speech um, on Tuesday night when he won the primary was very, very similar to a speech he gave at the Jericho March back in December of 2020. The Jericho March was a Christian nationalist event that uh, was part of the run-up to January 6th um, and helped lay the Christian nationalist groundwork for, for January 6th. And he gave very similar speeches, cited the same Bible verses in both of those speeches, and basically was saying, you know, that that he has, you know, he has a divine um, directive to, um, you know, to restore America to its, you know, to restore Pennsylvania or restore America uh, as a Christian nation, and that other Christians have a role to play here too, and that you're you're carrying out, you know history you're making history it's your 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 role your duty and just to give people a, a sense of the intensity of this there, there's a detail in your article in tpm that i it just kind of grabbed me so you say that at some of mastriano's campaign events they they're blowing a chauffeur i don't even know if i'm pronouncing that right but mm -hmm. but what is that and how has it been used in his campaign and how does it relate to christian nationalism so you know, as your Jewish listeners will know, the shofar is a Jewish ritual object that is used in synagogues at the High Holy Days. Um, it has, over the, over the, you know, 15 to 20 years that I've been reporting on the Christian right, I've seen it used more and more mm. at Christian events, at evangelical events, and used to advance these Christian nationalist ideas. Um, a big part of Christian nationalism is the belief that patriotic Christians have to engage in spiritual warfare um, with satanic enemies. So, so people, you know, or forces that are undermining the Christian nation. And they use the shofar as a, as a, as a mechanism almost for announcing that kind of spiritual warfare or making a statement that um, they are, are, are engaging in that kind of battle for the Christian nation. I mean, it's a complete, you know, terrible appropriation of a, of a, of a Jewish uh, 
ritual object for um, for this political end. But and is it meant it, to target? It is is so, it meant to be like a thing directed at Jewish people? No, no. It is meant as a statement of their um, their engagement in this in this battle for the Christian nation. So, like at, for example, at the Jericho march, it was blown and it was talked about in in the it was compared to the blowing of the trumpets in the in the story of Joshua in the Bible when the walls around the city of Jericho fell. And the comparison was that there are walls around the deep state and they want to make those walls fall so they can bring down the deep state, which is also seen as an enemy of the Christian nation. Let's take a couple calls, Sarah. Uh, and, and listeners, we're, we're asking you if you have thought about how you can confront the growth of some of these extremist ideologies amongst white Americans, whether it's the Christian nationalism that Sarah's talking about or the Great Replacement Theory uh, stuff that Juliet Kayim was talking about in our first segment. Call us up and let us know what your experience has been. 212-433-WNYC. That's 212 433 9692. And let's go to Wendy in Springfield, New Jersey. Wendy, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Um, don't feel helpless. There are many organizations, but I'll just give you two that I've been involved Please. with. One is braverangels.org. It's a nonprofit. And it's just like the therapy that couples go through. So you know how to argue, how to be disagree, to disagree without being disagreeable. For the reds to talk to the blues, the blues to talk to the reds. Okay. And the second one is... Um, projectsanctus.com and it's a dot com because it's um, you donate whatever you can afford for each session and we've been reading over the year um, uh, about the the uh, all of us of uh, black white everybody has gone through we're in a white supremacist world it's like fish in the water right so we've all been traumatized and it's how to deal with your trauma and work with other people to deal with their traumas and so how to deal with a white supremacist society nonviolently, but it starts with you because all this stuff is in the body. It's all in the body, right? Okay. Wendy, thank you for those recommendations. Let's go to Jeff in Derry, New Hampshire, I believe. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Um, so I just, I'm, I'm going home. I'm actually going home to where I primarily live, which is in Manhattan. But in any case, I was very lucky to go to a very prestigious boarding school, prep school for high school, and I just came from a big reunion. And most of the people there are extremely progressive, well-educated, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then there are two people from my class who both, after I knew them there, fell into very, very deeply into the born-again Christian movement. And I had shocking conversations with them at this reunion because these are people who went to this extremely high-level school and went on to Ivy League colleges and are not, as I like to sort of sometimes write people off, to be uneducated don't understand. And, and what I found was I was only successful with one person. One person just refused to even budge. But the other person actually responded because I happen to be a non-evangelical Portuguese Christian. I'm sort of a more mainline Protestant. I know the Bible very well. And I tried to talk at his level about what I believe Jesus Christ, thought of God or not, taught us and with his perspective on this. And that I think I find in all of my difficult political conversations with people who are going to these terrible places in their mind, that you have to find an in to something that they do agree with and then try to work from there. Uh, but still, I, I just have to say it's, it's 
just shocking to me um, to put together Christianity with a certain race or a certain nation, because that's just there's just nothing in the Gospels that even begins to propose that as the way we're supposed to go through life or deal with politics as Christian people. Thank you for that call. Um, and, you know, Sarah, building off a couple of things that Jeff said, one, um, is there, you know, he, he said, well, you know, I'm not sure where this comes from in Christianity, this idea that, um, that there are, there's a relationship between Christianity and what race you're, what race you are in terms of amongst Christian nationalists, what is their argument, <laughs> um, back to Jeff, um, that this is a Christian thing? Well, um, I mean, throughout history, you can find examples of, of, of Christianity being used or misused towards ends that uh, Jeff would probably consider un- unchristian. Um, so the idea of using Christianity for a certain political end is, is uh, not something that's unique to the Christian nationalism that we're seeing in the United States right now. Um, but what they would say, they would say, yes, I am loving my neighbor. I am uh, uh, living like Jesus because they, I mean, there are Christian nationalists who would point to you in the Bible that they would, they would claim that, um, you know, the idea of America was prophesied in the Bible. They would claim that America is like, um, uh, you know, it's like Jerusalem in the Bible, so that they compared uh, President Donald Trump to King Cyrus, who restored Jerusalem um, after the Babylonian uh, exile for for the Jews. Um, and so they tend to use the Bible as a proof text for a political idea that they have, because obviously, you know, the comparison of King Cyrus and Donald Trump is not very after even even like logical in any kind of way, um, so there is in a lot of ways it's it's there's not a lot of logic to be brought to the table in this. Um, but I would applaud anyone who could have a one-on-one conversation like Jeff did with his high school classmates and make some progress on that front. Well, just to for, just to quickly dig in on that for I mean, so it, it is then would you argue? Listen, this is not actually a religious conversation. Like, there's no point. Like, there's no point in terms of thinking about solutions. There's no point in getting into a debate over religion. That's not what this is about. This is about politics. Is that what you're arguing, um, or something different? Well, I mean, well, one way of having the discussion would be you have your view of Christianity and I have mine and we have, um, you know, religious freedom in this country and we have a separation of church and state. So you're free to practice your version of Christianity and I'm free to practice my version of Christianity and the state shouldn't interfere in that or impose one or the other. But Christian nationalists would argue that the separation of church and state is a myth and because they believe that America was divinely founded as a Christian nation, that it must be governed that way. So that's what makes it difficult to have that conversation because you can't really walk away agreeing that there's separation of church and state and religious freedom. And so, you know, you're each going to go on your happy way. Um, It would be 
you know, you would be more at loggerheads because of that core belief of Christian nationalism. Let's take a break. I'm talking with Sarah Posner, author of Unholy, Why White Evangelicals Worship at the Altar of Donald Trump and an investigative reporting fellow at the Type Media Center. She's been following the rise of Christian nationalism in the Republican Party for years and says it's surging in this year's Republican primary elections. After a break, I'll ask Sarah for the Republican Party's history with this movement. Welcome back. I'm Kai Wright, and I'm joined by Sarah Posner, author of Unholy, Why White Evangelicals Worship at the Altar of Donald Trump and an investigative reporting fellow at the Type Media Center. Earlier in the show, I spoke with a homeland security expert about the terrorist attack in Buffalo and the great replacement theory ideology that fueled that violence. Sarah is explaining another related set of extremist ideas, Christian nationalism. And we want to hear from you. Do you know anyone in your life who has followed either of these ideologies or any other form of white nationalism? And if so, how have you thought about how you can interrupt this, how you can interrupt its interrupt its growth. Let's go straight to Heather in Long Island. Heather, welcome to the show. Hi, Kai. Um, I just, one quick point. I just wanted to jump off on the um, Christian nationalist theory. Um, mm-hmm. It seems to me that a lot of uh, the, that type of person always is falling back on the Old Testament and not talking too much, while they might have imagery of Christ, they're not talking too much about Christ and his message. They're really going back a lot of Old Testament stuff like Cyrus and all that. So, you know, it's very confused message where they don't really talk about Jesus so much in his message, but go back to the fire and brimstone mm-hmm. of the Old Testament. So that's just one thing. But as I was saying to your screener before, <clears throat> I I'm in a town called Freeport on Long Island that is a little speck of blue in a very red area. We moved here purposely because of that. Um, But um, I I have acquaintances and friends uh, that are from other places. And they, um, my experience has been, if you can't get to somebody before they glommed on to these conspiracy theories or these wild ideas, they're gone. So you have to get to people when they are not radicalized, when they still are like, ah, you know, those people and blah, 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 and try to stop them in their tracks, get them to process what they're thinking and how they thought that and where they got these ideas and show them that their narrative is like so wrong and it's always been wrong. But the way to do that sometimes, and I think your other caller kind of touched upon it with go to something that a lot of people, working class people in particular, can agree upon, which is labor unions. Everybody wants a job. Everybody wants their kids to, you know, grow and flourish. How do we do that? Don't you think everybody wants those things the same as you do? And kind of like grow from that. Try to find a common issue to pull it out. Thank you for that, Heather. Um, and Sarah, it, the the premise of this conversation for me has been like, okay, how can people interrupt? How can people engage with this? Um, and I guess I want to just test that premise with you in the first place, right? Like, because I'm trying to get us to solutions and think about how we can just, you know, not just be terrified. And in your experience um, covering this this movement for so long, um, is this a space where people where people are where, where it's a, a reasonable goal to try to change people's mind, or is this about controlling the power of people who think this way? Well, 
I've both reported on people who are extremely enmeshed in this movement, and I've also reported on people who have left the movement. Um, so I guess my answer to that question would be that uh, you n not to assume that everyone who is enmeshed in the movement is enmeshed in it forever, mm -hmm. that there are a lot of people who have who end up for various reasons having epiphanies and trying to leave. Um, and not that leaving is easy, but, um, you know, it, it happens. Um, and many people who do end up leaving leave for reasons like, you know, they're gay and they could not withstand the homophobia anymore, or they were sexually abused and they saw that as being intertwined with it, or they just had some experience in the outside secular world that they had been sheltered from for a really long time that made them see that there were other ways of looking at the world and looking at politics. So I have, you know, I have interviewed and written about people like that too. So that always gives me a little bit of, of perspective that people aren't, aren't lodged in this forever. But I think at this particular moment, we're living in this moment where so much is on the line with our democracy, um, with with how much this movement drives the Republican Party and its stolen election lie, that um, that I think that like I, I think that's like keeping me on edge. Yeah. If that makes and sense. why spell out the the relationship between this and the stolen election lie? Like, why is this such an engine of that lie? So, you know, since the founding of the Moral Majority in the late 1970s and the Christian Coalition, the the modus operandi of the Christian right has been there is this this silent hidden majority in the United States that they're going to vote for these family values and these Christian values. And all we have to do is organize them and get them to the polls and get them to run for office. And then we'll win because, like, there are more of us. Um, and then I think they started to see that there aren't. They're a minority in this country. And I think the Obama years in particular made them realize that. Trump came along and became this m really messianic figure to them, I think, in large part, not only because they had this kind of transactional handshake about Supreme Court justices and so forth, right? Anti-Roe Supreme Court justices, but um, that he was willing to carry out their agenda uh, in anti-democratic ways, small d, anti-democratic ways, and that he kind of spoke their language about that there is this America that has been lost uh, to political correctness or wokeism or however they might want to phrase it at any particular time. And so, uh, that kind of fusion between the belief that God had ordained uh, or, you know, had got his hand on Trump or divinely ordained him to be in the Oval Office uh, and that, you know, Trump was the best president for the uh, Christianity ever uh, and that they started, they just it kind of went hand in hand when he started pressing the stolen election lie. Well, how could it possibly be? Uh, that this divinely ordained leader um, lost the election. And because mm -hmm. they also believe that they are engaged in this spiritual battle between the forces of good and satanic forces, well, it must have been these forces of evil that, you know, created, you know, stole, you know, 
stole the election from him or there was fraud or what have you. And so around the time of the election, you saw the Christian right getting on board with the stolen election lie. And after January 6th, you saw the Christian right with unprecedented support for uh, state level bills that we saw passed in 2021 that were designed to suppress the vote of Democratic voters. And it's not, you know, I think what's interesting there, is I hear you saying, is it's not even about the cynicism of it as much as if, if you believe that this is, in fact, a divinely inspired moment, that this person was put in office by God, it's unbelievable that he lost. Um, and yeah. so that and then everything is 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 on the table from there. I also think it's interesting to and think that about for Trump- somebody like. And for somebody like Doug Mastriano, right, then he uses that to say that we are going to come save the day and carry out God's will. Which is important. That's the next chapter now, is that now we're in for Mastriano. This is not about look back. This is about, okay, mount the the crusade to take back power for for Christian, for, for white Christians. In your article, um, you sort of tick through all the different versions of, um, or a number of different versions uh, of sort of far-right re- religious movements uh, that have had some relationship to the Republican Party over the years. Uh, but you say that really from Reagan through the Bushes, uh, there was a sort of a distance there um, and that something changed in the McCain campaign. Is that an accurate characterization of the sweep of history? So since the, you know, the the merger of the Christian right and the Republican Party with with Reagan's election in 1980, you know, the white evangelicals and conservative white Catholics have been merged with the Republican Party. Right. But during that time period, there were also changes that were happening within evangelicalism, where these sort of new religious movements or sub-movements were becoming more focused on and driven by um, these charismatic Christian ideas about um, uh, faith healing and revelation, you know, directly from God and prophesying and movements that said that, you know, there are uh, modern day disciples and prophets and apostles of Jesus who, you know, have to be, you know, engaged in spiritual warfare to, um, to defend the Christian nation. But, you know, you, what you saw with the Bushes is like, they know that they need to like, you know, reach out to all these different segments of the evangelical world to win elections, but, you know, they're not going to invite some of these uh, figures into the Oval Office to lay hands on them like Trump did. Right. Um, So while you're having this, this, uh, the solidifying of this merger between the uh, the religious right and the Republican Party, these changes are happening within the religious world. And then you see John McCain uh, nominate Sarah Palin, who comes from that world, as his running mate. And then you see Rick Perry in 2011 having his massive prayer rally in the professional basketball stadium in Houston that was very much driven by those kinds of religious movements. And there was a lot of prophesying and speaking tongues and that sort of thing happening at that prayer rally, right? And uh, so they're increasingly becoming more enmeshed in mainstream Republican politics. And then Trump comes along and he's really good friends with Paula White, who's a televangelist who comes from that world herself. And she introduces him to all of these other figures. And, and I think that 
a lot of political reporters were mystified by some of the religious figures that he brought into his 2016 campaign. They weren't well-known. They weren't denominational leaders that were familiar to political reporters. But for Trump, this was a way of building his base and building a base that was like – that was – driven by this like oh we're getting a prophecy right. from god that trump is the chosen one or something of that nature um and so that all fused together too and they're very driven by christian nationalism as well yeah. and so uh what you saw in the trump era was really an escalation of that kind of charismatic christianity that that corner of the or that segment of the evangelical world really becoming more enmeshed in Republican politics. And you're seeing it now in more and more candidates for lower office, really re reaching out to those kinds of audiences and expressing their, those ideas themselves. And Sarah, we have like 30 seconds here, but in terms of a solution, are, do you see a similar rise in movements to counter this in, 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 in religious spaces? Well, I do see um, Christians uh, mobilizing against Christian nationalism, and you see more organizing by uh, groups, atheist groups, secular groups, groups that are uh, working to support separation of church and state. All of those things are important, you know, the Christian from the Christian side and also from the secular slash atheist side. We'll have to stop there. Sarah Posner is author of Unholy Why White Evangelicals Worship at the Altar of Donald Trump. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. And if we didn't get to your call, send us an email, anxiety at WNYC.org. That's anxiety at WNYC.org. I'm Kai Wright, and I will be here next week. Talk to you then. The United States of Anxiety is a production of WNYC Studios. The theme music was written by Hannes Brown and performed by the Outer Borough Brass Band. Sound designed by Jared Paul. Matthew Miranda was at the boards for the live show. Wayne Schulmeister mixed the podcast version. And our team also includes Emily Botin, Regina Dehir, Karen Frillman, Rahima Nasa, and Kusha Navadar. And I am Kai Wright. You can keep in touch with me on Twitter at Kai underscore Wright. And of course, you can find me live Sunday evening at 6. Stream it at WNYC.org or tell your smart speaker to play WNYC. Till then, thanks for listening. Take care of yourselves.